are listening to the audio preaching podcast from North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California, led by Pastor Jack Treber. Though located in the heart of the Silicon Valley, you will hear fervent, old-fashioned revival preaching from the pulpit of North Valley Baptist Church. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. Turn with me there, book of Zephaniah in the Old Testament. It's good to be in church on Wednesday night, and I sure appreciate you being here. And I know you've had a busy week and a full day. And I'm asking God to speak to our hearts this evening, and uh, appreciate the opportunity to uh, preach. I've never preached a message out of Zephaniah before. In fact, I had to use the index to figure out where it was in my Bible. And then I began to read the book of Zephaniah, and now I'm praying hard that whenever it comes time that the preacher will let me do the book of Philippians so we can get on something positive, because <clears throat> you're sure not going to get any of that tonight. But anyway, I can't wait for uh, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. That'll be a good change, won't it? But Zephaniah... We're going to read chapter number 1, verse 1 through verse number 6, then read verse 14 down through verse 18, and then the first three verses of chapter number 2 tonight, and I'll give you the, uh, the thought. Now, you got to remember as you read these Old Testament books that we call the 12 Minor Prophets, that all these books are combined into one book in the Hebrew Scriptures, and they're not minor in importance. They're just as important as any other book in the Bible. They're just not as large in size or scope as Daniel and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah and others. But the message contained in these is very important, very applicable. And a lot of them deal with, of course, future things. The Bible is largely a Jewish book. Jerusalem, of course, is a Jewish city. Israel's is a Jewish country. Jesus is a Jewish Messiah. And God's not done dealing with his chosen people. Amen. And uh, this book looks ahead to a time when God will judge the world, the Great Tribulation period, and then the establishing of the Millennial Kingdom here on earth. And I won't get too much into that because it would take more than one service, but we'll uh, hit on that and then give you something you can take home with you tonight. Zephaniah chapter number 1, verse number 1. The word of the Lord which came unto Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, that's, by the way, the same king as Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the, king, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, I will utterly consume all things from off the land, saith the Lord. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the fowls of the heaven and the fishes of the sea and the stumbling blocks with the wicked. And I will cut off man from off the lands, saith the Lord. I will stretch out mine, eye, or my, mine hand or there upon Judah and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place. And the name of the Camerams with the priests, and them that worship the host of heaven upon the housetops, and them that worship and that swear by the Lord and that swear by Malcolm. Now, that would be the same as Molech. Verse 6, and them that are turned back from the Lord, and those that have not sought the Lord nor inquired of him, or for him. Verse 14, the great day of the Lord. Now, anytime you see that in your Bible, you underline it. And it ought to get your attention focused on future things. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hasteth greatly. Even the voice of the day of the Lord, the mighty man shall cry there bitterly. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of the trumpet and alarm against the fenced cities, against the high towers. And I will bring distress upon men, that they shall walk like blind men, because they have sinned against the Lord. And their blood shall be poured out as dust, and their flesh as the dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath, 
but the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy. For he shall make even a speedy riddance of all them that dwell in the land. Now up to this point, we've been reading God's pronouncement of judgment through Zephaniah upon Judah specifically. And the immediate context deals with the soon coming invasion of King Nebuchadnezzar and the captivity that would follow. But prophetically, we see here a commentary of the conditions of the tribulation period or the times of Jacob's trouble. All of this judgment is pronounced, and by the way, that ought to encourage you and excite you and make you glad for the grace of God that we're not going through one split nanosecond of the tribulation period. We're not appointed under wrath, but we are looking forward to rapture. We're not looking for a sign. We're listening for the shout, the trump of God, and then we'll be out of here. We'll lose all gravitation, and finally, white men will get some jumps. Amen right there. But anyway, we're waiting on rapture. Now, all of this, and some of you are very encouraged by that, in, verse, in chapter number one is very negative. <clears throat> judgment is pronounced, and judgment is coming, and judgment did come, and yet will come. But I want us to see the first three verses of chapter two. The Bible says, gather yourselves together, yea, gather together, O nation, not desired. He's speaking to Israel and Judah. Before the decree, bring forth. Before the day passes the chaff, before the fierce anger of the Lord come upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger come upon you, seek ye the Lord, all ye meek of the earth, which have wrought his judgment. Seek righteousness, seek meekness. It may be ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. So in chapter number one, judgment is pronounced. But in the beginning of chapter number two, the first three verses, God through the preacher is pleading with his people to gather themselves, to repent, get right, and respond to the preached word of God. He's saying before this happens, before this comes to pass, respond to what you've heard. Get right. Repent. Respond to the message that's been delivered unto you. For a little while this evening, we'll focus on that word. That will be the word, the R word that I'll use tonight just so we can apply it for us. That word, respond. And you'll notice as we begin reading in the prophecy of Zephaniah that all of these sins and these abominations are taking place. But as we'll go back tonight to the book of, uh, of Kings, we'll notice that revival happened during the time of Zephaniah as well. And I think it hinges on the fact that God's people and the king at that time responded to the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray you'd please help me preach tonight. I pray that you'd help the message to go forth in clarity. I pray that you'd help my thoughts to be gathered together so that they would make sense. Most of all, I pray the Holy Spirit of God would empower me to preach and empower the folks in the pews to listen. And God, that you would stir us, Lord, in America. I think it's worse than that we're at a crossroads. I'm afraid we've already gone a few feet down the wrong direction. I pray you'd help us, Lord, to hear the word of God and respond. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to imagine this scene with me. It's a serene, sunny, spring Sunday morning. Everyone's dressed in their Sunday best. Church bells are ringing. Birds are singing. Families are walking hand in hand down the sidewalk to make their way into the church house. The pews are crowded. You can smell it in the background as dinner on the grounds is being prepared. They begin to sing hymns. Echoing through this little country church are songs like, Shall We Gather at the River? In the sweet by and by, folks are smiling, they're shaking hands and nodding their heads. 
Everything is just like you'd want it to be. The pews appear to be spiritual and engaged in the things of God. There's a Bible on every lap. There's a smile on every face. There's a shout on every lip. It looks like revivals in the air. There's an unmistakable form of godliness about the entire situation. Now, the scene I've described would depict a congregation that any preacher would beg God to allow him to lead. Suddenly, the preacher steps behind the pulpit. His congregation looks on attentively, excited to hear what their minister has for them today. They begin to think among themselves, what will he share with us? Maybe today he'll preach on the Lord is our shepherd and we won't have to want. Maybe he'll preach on God is love. Maybe he'll preach on the fact that God will supply our every need. The preacher steps behind the pulpit and suddenly he opens his mouth and he raises his voice. And with his fist falling like a wrecking ball down upon the pulpit, he shouts at the top of his ability, God is going to destroy this country and kill everybody in it. Now that's exactly how Zephaniah opens his prophecy. There is no easing into it. He does not dull the edge of truth that God has burdened him to proclaim. I would say the preacher's thunderous voice cracked across the scene that we just mentioned to you like a bolt of lightning that creases across the sky. No doubt his cry interrupted the ease that the people of God were feeling. This prophecy is intended to awaken a sleeping nation that the Bible said had settled upon their leaves. Zephaniah's message disrupts the ongoing affair with sin that Judah had been engaged in. He's their spiritual watchman. And he stood upon the wall and seen danger and judgment approaching. Zephaniah is the final writing prophet before the Babylonian captivity came. And one Bible commentator said it well. He said, Zephaniah is the swan song of the Davidic kingdom. Now to understand the context of time in which Zephaniah is preaching, we have to go back to the history of Israel and consider the reigns of King Manasseh and his son, King Ammon. The revival days of King Hezekiah were followed by apostate and apathetic days under those two kings. Judah had fallen into idolatry. They'd fallen into perversion. And the five-and-a-half-decade reign of Manasseh and the two-year reign of King Ammon had seen Judah backslide from God. Apostasy and wickedness were rampant and far-reaching. To put it lightly, the spiritual climate during the early days of Zephaniah's life and the early days of his prophesying were cold and getting colder by the minute toward God and righteousness. Now, just because it's Wednesday night and it's more of a Bible, so let's read some scripture. Take your Bible, go back with me to 2 Kings chapter 21. 2 Kings chapter 21, I want us to get a commentary on just how wicked it was during the reign of King Manasseh. Verse number 1, 2 Kings 21. The Bible says, as you're finding your place, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. And reigned fifty and five years in Jerusalem. Verse 2. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord after the abominations of the heathen. Verse 3. For he built up again the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. And he reared up altars for Baal and made a grove as did Ahab, king of Israel, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. 
Verse 4, and he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord said in Jerusalem, will I put my name. Verse 5, and he built altars for all the hosts of heaven. So he's worshiping the stars and the moon and the sun. He's worshiping the creation now and not the creator. Verse 6, he made his son pass through the fire and observed times and used enchantments and dealt with familiar spirits and watched Harry Potter, er, wait, and wizards, and he wrought much wickedness in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. Verse 7, and he set a graven image of the grove that he made in the house. So here's Manasseh's reign. Manasseh ushers in Baal worship. That's basically worshiping the lust of the flesh. He ushers in this worship of Molech, where they would literally offer their children, murder their children as a sacrifice to that false god. He's worshiping astrology, horoscopes, if you will. He's worshiping the sun, the moon, the stars, and all these celestial uh, uh, bodies. He's worshiping things other than God. Then he goes so far as to set up an idol in the very house of of God. Can I say idol worship is simply you and I worshiping God plus anything else. And that is the condition here of Judah in Manasseh's reign. Verse 9, the Bible says Manasseh seduced them, the nation, to do more evil than did the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the children of Israel. So Manasseh brings in more wickedness to Judah than ever the Canaanites or any other lost Gentile nation had done before. That is the people of God, the nation of God, this king on the throne of God who is ushering in idol worship, paganism, the lust of the flesh here in Judah. After him, 55 years of that, by the way. After him comes his son, King Ammon, and the Bible says in verse number 20 of the same chapter about Ammon, he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord as his father Manasseh did. Verse 21, it says that he walked in all the ways of his father, he served idols, and he worshiped those idols. Verse 22, he forsook the Lord. So that's the throne and the policies of Judah when Zephaniah is born. Zephaniah is growing up in a nation that has mingled Judaism with paganism, worshiping God with worshiping idols, holiness with worldliness, and they're worshiping their flesh and all of these things that God said were an abomination. Now you come to Zephaniah chapter 1, all those things are mentioned in the very first chapter. He mentions the same things. He talks about the fact that they're worshiping Baal in chapter verse number 4. He talks about the Camerims. Those are the priests, the idolatrous priests. He mentions in verse 4. Verse 5, they worship all the host of heaven. They also swear by Malcolm as they swear by the Lord. That means they're worshiping Jehovah and worshiping Molech at the very same time. So idol worship, paganism, sin is being legislated in Judah. Now Zephaniah is the ninth out of twelve minor prophets. Now what's interesting about him is the Bible gives us his lineage in the first verse. And the Bible shows us that he is a direct descendant of King Hezekiah. He's the only minor prophet that has kingly lineage. 
Now, I believe God is going to use this family connection to give Zephaniah access to the ear and the heart of Josiah, unlike another prophet would have enjoyed. Isn't it amazing how God knows what he's doing? God knows what he's doing when he puts you in the family that you're in, in the place where you are to serve, in the generation that you're living in. God knows what he's doing. Now, Zephaniah has lived through part, maybe, of Manasseh's reign. He'd seen the sin under Ammon's reign. And he realizes that unless God's people repent and respond to the warnings of God, they're going to lose their land, their liberty, and maybe even their lives. Zephaniah is burdened, and God is mad over the sins of Judah. To put it plainly, God's people needed revival. And if they were going to see revival, they would have to respond to the word of God and get right. Now, Zephaniah's prophecy is sort of like a Cliff Notes version of Jeremiah's prophecy. And I don't know about you, but if that be true, then I'm all for the Cliff Notes version tonight. The judgment that Zephaniah warned of in the immediate context, I said, is the coming Babylonian captivity by Nebuchadnezzar. Now, if you study out Zephaniah, it's only three chapters. I'll just give you the context or the content of each chapter with a heading. Chapter 1 would be the judgment pronounced upon Judah. Chapter 2 is judgment pronounced upon Gentile nations. Then chapter number 3 are the final judgments and then the regathering and the reestablishing of God's people. Now, the immediate context, again, is that God is about to use a pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, to execute judgment against the people of God. And just to make application, it's a sad day when God has to use a lost world and a wicked society to get his people to wake up. But in the prophetic context, it's obvious Zephaniah is looking further ahead than just the judgment that would come in his generation. He's offering us insight into a time that is yet to be fulfilled on God's prophetic calendar. Now, throughout the book of Zephaniah, there's a phrase that is mentioned at least seven times and referenced more than that. There's a phrase, the day of the Lord. You'll find it in chapter 1. You find it throughout chapter 2. You find it in chapter 3, references to the day of the Lord. Now, in the practical sense... The day of the Lord is just that time, any time when God comes down and executes judgment upon his people. But in the prophetic sense, the day of the Lord has us looking ahead to the coming tribulation period and the millennial kingdom that follows the tribulation period. So Zephaniah's prophecy has two purposes. Number one, it warns the Jew in his day that judgment will come upon them. But it also gives us a look ahead into the future when a t- of a time when God's wrath will be poured out upon this earth unlike has ever been seen before. Now every bit of prophesied judgment and all the devastation that Zephaniah preaches to Judah in his day looks ahead to a day when great tribulation will come upon Israel. That will be followed by the destruction of the armies of the Antichrist, the restoration of Israel, and the establishment of a righteous kingdom seated in Jerusalem with Jesus on the throne. There are 500 prophecies in the Old Testament that deal directly with a Judean king sitting on a Judean throne in a visible Jewish kingdom with Jerusalem 
as its capital. That ought to be a public service announcement, by the way, to all these Gentile, or let me say Muslim nations that are listed in chapter number two of this book of prophecy. That ought to be a wake-up call to Lebanon and Jordan and Saudi Arabia and Egypt and Turkey and Iran and Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan and Palestine. And let's just throw in China and Russia because it feels good. Hey, listen, can I say every terrorist tucked away in their cave tonight ought to be shaking in their sand over the fact that that land belongs to Israel. It won't be taken away. It won't be revoked. It won't be revised. It will be realized just as God said it would. In Genesis 13, God promised a permanent land to Abraham. In Genesis, or for the first Kings 9, 5, God promises a permanent throne to David. And there's nobody here that's going to do away with that. That land belongs to the Jews. From the first to the last of the prophetic books, that literal kingdom of heaven that will be established on earth is repeated over and over and over again. Amen. You study the, co the covenants with Adam, with Noah, with Abraham, with Israel, with David. They all point to the millennial kingdom that will be established on earth. Let me call time out and just say this. By the way, that millennial kingdom is not ushered in by us building bridges and call, uh, making a one world religion and having an ecumenical body of believers. We don't do kingdom work. We're doing gospel work. Say amen right there. You and I are going to be out of here. Everybody all right? I know that messes up every Southern Baptist theology, but that's in the Bible. The minor prophets center upon this future day of the Lord. In fact, you could summarize it like this. Habakkuk looks forward, or rather Habakkuk reveals us the route of the day of the Lord. Zephaniah talks about the negative nature of the day of the Lord. Uh, uh, Haggai talks about the rebuilding of the temple in the day of the Lord. Zechariah talks about the last battle of the day of the Lord. And Malachi gives us warnings that will precede the day of the Lord. And I think what God is wanting us to see as we read the minor prophets is this, that judgment for Israel's sin is coming and justice against the Gentile nations that harm Israel is coming and most importantly tonight Jesus is coming and he's going to set wrong things right we've got to remember we're walking on his ground we're breathing his air we drink his water this world is his footstool and one day Jesus will rule and reign as king in Jerusalem as you read Zephaniah, I kind of like holding still when I preach. You can hit, hit that more. As you read Zephaniah, you've got to read it with a holy hush and a fearful looking forward as this prophecy reminds us that God is more than just a God of grace and more than just a God of mercy and more than just a God of love. Now, he is that, no doubt about it. Charles Spurgeon was talking to a man, and the man had a weather vane on his barn that said, God is love. And Charles Spurgeon said, are you trying to tell me that God's love is as fickle as the wind and it changes directions all the time? He said, no, I'm trying to tell you that whatever way the wind blows, it don't change the fact God is love. That's pretty good preaching. But the Bible tells us in the book of Romans that we ought to consider both the goodness and the severity of the Lord. And yes, God's a God of love, mercy, and grace, but he's also a God who's angry with the wicked every day. And he's a God who does judge sin. And at times it might seem like God's judgment is delayed, but, not, but mark it down, his judgment is never derailed. 
And the judgment wheel might turn slow, but it does turn fine. And God is true to his word. And though there's pleasure in sin for a season, the way of the sinner's hard, and the wage of sin is death, and God will judge sin. As I read the book of Zephaniah, my mind filled with visions of bitterness and smoke and blood up to the horses bridle and pestilence and famine and plagues and Nebuchadnezzar and the Antichrist and Babylon and brimstone. It wasn't a pleasant prophecy because it wasn't a pleasant situation. Zephaniah saw a wicked nation. He saw a polluted priesthood. He saw corrupt leadership. He watched his people walk away from God. Restoration might come in the future, but retribution was going to come first. What a horrible message but wait a minute I said that he prophesied primarily during the reign of King Josiah now anyone tonight that has a King James Bible knows that Josiah was a good and godly king in fact reformation and revival happened under the reign of Josiah in fact I'll say it like this they got to have one last revival before judgment came If Ammon and Manasseh had polluted Israel, Josiah is like the pure stream that cleansed Judah just for a time. Take your Bible, go back with me to 2 Kings chapter 22. In 2 Kings chapter 22, we read that Josiah is going to undo all the sin that Manasseh and Ammon had done in Judah. Somebody said, Billy Sunday, revival is only temporary. He said, so is a bath, but you ought to take one every once in a while. And I thank God for the bath that Josiah is about to give his nation. The Bible said in verse 1, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 30 and one years in Jerusalem, verse 2. And he did that which was, look what it says, right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the way of David his father and turned not aside to the right hand or to the left. Go down to verse number 8. This happens during his reign. He sets out to clean out the house of God and they make a discovery. And Hilkiah the high priest said, by the way there's no revival without the Bible. Say amen right there. And Hilkiah the high priest said unto Shaphan the scribe I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. Verse number 19. This is imperative. In verse number 19, God responds to Josiah getting his nation right. And he says, Because thine heart was tender, and thou hast humbled thyself before the Lord, when thou heardest what I spake against this place and against the inhabitants thereof, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and hast ripped thy clothes and wept before me, I also have heard thee, saith the Lord. God's saying, I'm going to hold back the flood of judgment because you got tender, you got humble, you repented, responded, and got right to the preaching of the word of God. He didn't stop there. Chapter 23, the Bible says in verse number 3, look what he did. The king stood by a pillar, where I come from, a pillar is something you lay on at night. And the king stood by a pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all their heart and all their soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people stood to the covenant. Verse 4. And the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the door to bring forth out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels that were made for Baal and for the grove and for the host of heaven. And he burned them without Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron and carried the ashes of them unto Bethel. Verse 5. He put down the idolatrous priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to burn incense in the high places in the city of Judah. Verse 6. He brought out the grove from the house of the Lord without Jerusalem on the brook Kidron and burned it. Verse 7. 
And he break down the house of the sodomites that were by the house of the Lord where the women wove hangings for the grove. Verse 8, and he brought all the priests out of the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had burned incense from Geba to Beersheba and break down the high places of the gates that were in the entering in of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city. Verse number 10, and he defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the children of Hinnom, that no man might make his son or his daughter to pass through the fire to Molech. Verse 11, he took away the horses that the kings of Judah had given to the son at the entering into the house of the Lord by the chamber of of Nathimelech the chamberlain. Go on, we can read verse 12 and 13 and 14. It talks about him breaking down the groves and breaking down the images and Judah goes from apostasy to awakening and rebellion to revival. They got right with God because Josiah heard the preacher read the word of God and responded to the message. I'm convinced as I read Zephaniah and study it in context in 2 Kings that Zephaniah got through to King Josiah and that king was stirred to action and they saw revival in Judah. I came here to chapter 2 and I see that and that corresponds with that verse we read, verse 19, just a minute ago in 2 Kings. God extends an olive branch of mercy and grace to his people. And in chapter 1, he says, judgment's coming and death is coming and I'll kill everybody in this land. I'm going to destroy all the animal life. Everything's going to be wiped away. And of course, that has tribulation uh, meaning, but it also had immediate context for Zephaniah's day. And God says, but before that happens, gather yourselves together. Yea, gather together, O nation not desired. Before the decree bring forth, before the day passes the chaff, before the fierce anger of the Lord come upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger come upon you, says, seek, seek ye the Lord. He's saying before the clock strikes 12, would you please just get right with God before the judgment comes? Would you respond to the preacher? Oh, before God's wrath is poured out, would you please consider your ways? Repent and respond. One more revival. One more move of God. One more shower of blessing. If you'll respond to the preacher, God does not want to punish his people. God wants to bless his people. In fact, in Habakkuk, we hear God's a God who in wrath remembers mercy. And God is saying, urgent, in a hurry, don't wait. Would you get right? Would you respond? Now you read on and you find judgment comes. Josiah dies and God can't overlook or wink at the wickedness of Manasseh and Ammon. Judgment comes. But can I say there for a little space of grace, there for a little moment, They got to see real revival. And it all hinged on the fact that the king responded when God spoke to his heart. Now, since this isn't so much a verse-by-verse Bible study on a Wednesday night, but just an overview, and then we preach the devil out of you, say amen right there. Let me give you something that you can take home with you. I said earlier the phrase, the day of the Lord has future implications, but it can also signify any time when God comes down and responds to the actions of man specifically to judge sin. Can I say that American Christianity is on track to experience the judgment of God if we fail to respond to his word? It's amazing how the church likes to claim the promises of revival that God made for Israel. Second Chronicles 7, 14. 
but we don't want to claim the promises of judgment that God made to Israel when they fell into sin. Can I say God, again, he does not wink at wickedness. He will not let sin slide. God will judge an individual or a nation that thumbs their nose in his direction. And can I say the clock is about to strike midnight in our own country. Judah goes from wickedness to revival because they responded to the word of God. That word respond, you know what that means? That word respond means to reply or answer in words. It's almost like saying amen. To make a return by some action. That's almost like going to an altar. To acknowledge, answer, react, or reply. That's like turning directions, getting right, and doing what God's asked you to do. But can I say the problem is this. Thank God faith cometh by hearing. And we're blessed to hear the word of God, aren't we? Aren't you glad that in 2020 we still have a well of water to get a drink from? I'm glad we still have a place near the Bible preached. I'm glad we're not trying to change the Bible, manipulate the Bible, water down the Bible, or do away with the Bible. We want to preach the Bible. And I'm glad we can still hear the word of God. That's where faith comes from. Thank God we have the King James Bible and we preach it at our church. Thank God for the Bible. But can I say the problem is this. We need to do more than hear the word of God. We must heed the word of God. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. It's one thing to hear it preached, but another thing to respond when God speaks to your heart. Without question, if we lift this thought out of Zephaniah and make application for us tonight, we're living in that 11th hour. God is going to judge our nation. God is going to judge America. We pray God bless America, but I think we're at the point we better pray God spare America for another generation. God is going to pour out wrath if we don't get right. Billy Sunday used to have a banner behind his uh, platform in his meetings, and it simply said this, get right with God. Get right with God. Our nation is just like Judah in Zephaniah's day. Idolatry is rampant. We've traded out groves for ball fields. We've traded out the sun, the moon, and the stars for dollars and cents. But no question, we live in an idolatrous society. We bow at the altar of our Wi-Fi connection. We worship the rising stock market. Fornication and perversity are paraded and applauded in our day, just like Zephaniah's, and God will judge sin. We offer entire months to show our pride over the most base behavior mankind can commit. We applaud perverts and call them brave and malign our soldiers and mock our police force. The worship of the creature has overtaken the worship of the creator. We shout, save the whales and kill the children. In Zephaniah's day, they made their boys and girls pass through the fire and offer them the molep. Today, we sacrifice our children on the altar of humanistic indoctrination that denies the reality of God and the morality of the Bible. We say, well, that's being woke. God said, that's being wicked. And God will judge sin. Can I say tonight God is speaking to America. God is trying to get our attention. Won't we respond to the word of God? Babies can be butchered, but frogs and whales and bed bugs and mushrooms are fought for. We celebrate Earth Day and we ignore the Lord's Day. Now it's sleep day and golf day and fish day and shopping day and nap day and football day. The wine of Zephaniah's day that drove his people to drunkenness has been replaced with needles in the 
the arms and pills in the throat of our generation. How many doctors have we lost to pharmaceuticals? How many preachers have we lost to some kind of drug? How many people that can change our world are sitting under a bridge tonight in a gutter tonight because they put a pill down their throat? We've lost an army of Americans to that mess. The preacher cried out the other night and said we're at a crossroads, but I think we've gone past the crossroads. I think we're already down the wrong direction. We've passed the fork in the road, and is anybody out there concerned about the condition of our country and the future of our nation? Somebody's got to get right with God and respond to the preacher. In Zephaniah's day, the rich got richer and the poor got poorer. Corrupt politics destroyed the middle class. In our day, we watch billionaires tell us not to burn too much fossil fuel as they recline in the leather seat of their own private jet while hundreds of men and women are having to camp out under a bridge in a cardboard shack. The social elites want to take away our guns and tell us not to preach about a border wall all the time they sit in their walled-in estates with armed guards at the front. Slot machines and scratch-off tickets have lines around the corner and employers post job positions and nobody wants to fill it. That's because they've been lulled to laziness and settled upon their lees by a government who says, you just trust me and I'll meet your every need. Zephaniah lived in a day when the word of the Lord had been lost in the house of God. And we live in a day when the churches of our country don't even want the word of God. The average church has a light show, a concert, entertainment, and good fellowship. But they don't have any Bible. You don't have to have, you don't have, to have electricity to have church. You don't have to have pews to have church. Literally, you don't even have to have a piano to have church. But you do have to have the word of God to have church. The temple of Zephaniah's day was neglected, just like the local church in our own generation. There's time for PTA meetings and AA meetings and ladies' meetings and board meetings, but no time for prayer meetings. I saw a statistic put out by Duke University that said the average congregation is 45%, 60 years old and above. All that means is just hang on in 10 years, all the churches will be gone because the membership will die out. Is there anyone out there that's going to respond? Is anybody going to answer when God speaks? Will you respond to your need to get right? Will you respond to your need to re-enlist in God's work? Will you respond to stand for the faith that's been delivered? Will you respond to raise your family God's way? Will you respond to lay aside the weight and repent of the sin that hinders your Christian testimony? Will you respond to empty yourself of self and try to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God? We say, where's the old-time move of God? Where's the old-time spirit? Where's the old-time power? Where is it that, that we hunger for and that we say we want? It's waiting in the wings for a person or a church to simply respond and get right with God. I want you to ask yourself in closing tonight, is God speaking to me? Is God speaking to me? What is God speaking to me about When's the last time I heard his voice? When's the last time he spoke to my heart? Jesus says in Revelation, Behold, I stand at the door and... And I think if we'd be real quiet tonight, if you'd be still in your spirit, some of us would hear that in the area of our devotional life. I sure like to get back in there. Oh, I'd like to get back in your prayer life. I sure would like to get back in your witness. I'd like to get back in your church service. Would you open the door and let me in before the decree bring forth, before the day passes the chaff, 
before the fierce anger of the Lord come upon you, would you seek the Lord? Tonight, I believe God is speaking to America. But all over the country tonight on Wednesday night, there's been people that have worked all week and they're tired like we are. And they're in church like we are. But sad to say, they're going to have someone who parades themselves around as a preacher who doesn't even carry a Bible to the pulpit. And they'll leave with some sort of a back-scratching, ear-tickling, you can have your best life now, just try harder, do better kind of a message. But tonight, you and I have been blessed and burdened with the hearing of the Word of God. And if America's going to see revival, it's not going to happen at the liberal, wishy-washy, worship-centered church down the road where they don't have the Bible. If we're going to have revival, it's going to start in Bible-believing churches like this. But it's not enough to hear. Somebody's going to have to heed. Would you respond to God tonight? Thank you for listening to the audio preaching podcast from North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California, led by Pastor Jack Treber. For more information about our ministry or to find out how to get in contact with us, visit our website at nvbc.org. May God bless you as you serve Him this week.